Good morning. Uh, Would you pray with me? Father, we've gathered together this morning uh, to focus our attention on you and uh, to worship you and to listen to your word. And even that, we want to be an act of worship because as we listen, we want it, your word, to have sway in our lives. We want it to be powerful in us, to to mold us, to shape us, to change us, to make us into the kind of people you have called us to be, the kind of people you want us to be. So, Father, we know that only happens by the power of your Spirit. So we invite your Spirit to be at work in us because we know you're here. We just want to open our lives to your presence as we uh, wrestle together with the Word of God. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. What does it take to be a great leader? Is it a matter of personality, style? Are great leaders just born or can they be developed? What makes a great leader? I want want to do a little experiment. I want you to think of the best leader that you've ever served under maybe at work or school all kinds of different places who's the who is that person that comes to your mind that you've had personal experience with when, when you think of a really really good leader got it okay now now my question is what made them such a good leader once you have that figured out tell your neighbor go ahead you can talk tell your neighbor what what made them a good leader be interesting to be able to get everybody's feedback. I'm curious if we'd find a cluster of, of, of similarities. When you go in the book of First Corinthians, one of the things you find is that their admiration of certain leaders had actually gotten them into trouble. We've been studying the book of First Corinthians, and uh, this particular section we've been looking at, chapters one through four, is really centered around divisions in the church. And what had caused the divisions is people's overcommitment to particular leaders. Some said, oh, I'm a follower of Paul. Oh, I'm a follower of Paulus. Oh, I'm a follower of Peter. Oh, I'm a follower of Jesus. And they were competing. They, they were burging, as Larry so aptly put it, basking in reflected glory. They were attaching themselves to these leaders and then comparing the greatness of their leader to these other leaders. And it was having a really negative impact on the unity of the church. So Paul has been going after this issue and explaining how leaders are to function and uh, how wrong it is just to see them as any more than straws tools in the hands of God. We get to chapter 4, though, and Paul is finishing up his argument about how the Corinthians should handle their leaders, and he's going to say, this is how you should regard or think about your leaders. And what he's going to do in this chapter is really detail for us how we should think about leaders. And at one point he's going to talk about their their fundamental identity, then their responsibilities, and then how the world perceives them, and then how they should function in the church. And all this together will help the Corinthians have a really good understanding of this thing called leadership. Now, I want us to listen this morning to what Paul has to say for two reasons. One, I believe that leadership is absolutely crucial. 
in any organization, in any business, and in the church, things rise and fall with the leadership. It, it, it's, it's essential to have good leadership. So we need to understand what that is. For a number of years, I've been doing consults with other churches. We go in as a team and we interview the pastor and we interview people and we interview the board and we kind of step back and do a snapshot of the health of the church. And almost in every consult I've participated in, leadership always is one of the top issues. And churches usually err on one of two sides. On the one hand, they put their leaders on pedestals and, and set these expectations of perfection and uh, begin to think they're everything. Or on the other hand, they knock them off completely the pedestal. <laughs> and they shouldn't be on pedestals anyway. The other hand, they, they disregard their leadership. They, 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 they won't let them... They disrespect them. They won't let their fulfill, them fulfill their role or calling in the midst of the church. And the church needs leaders. And figuring out where the church operates with those leaders is critical to the church's health. But there's a second reason. Not only is leadership important, but there is a sense in which Paul, as he's describing the characteristics of these leaders and what they should be like and what should be true about them and how we should think about them, He, in a sense, is also describing us. Because at the end of this passage, he's going to tell the Corinthians, look, I want you to imitate me. And obviously, Paul's trying to live out these characteristics of leadership. So in a sense, indirectly, Paul is saying, listen to what I'm saying, because not only should it be true about your leaders, but it should be true about you. So this passage becomes incredibly relevant. So four things that make up a leader from Paul's perspective. The the first is that they are servants. Look with me at verses 1. The first verse, he'll describe this for us. This then is how you ought to regard or think about us. And he's talking, he's been talking about himself and Apollos. Uh, and the leaders that have been there and the apostles. This is how then you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. So very first, Paul says, look, a, a leader is a servant. And this is a really interesting word. This word is not the typical word for servant, diakonos, which we've seen in chapter 5. It's the word we get deacon from. This is this is a different word. It's hypertase. And, and it's it's a word that's used to describe a rower in a particular kind of boat. I think we got a picture uh, of a, a uh, it's called a tres reme. If you see, there's actually three rows of oars. And this hypertase was the person who manned the bottom row in the boat. If you were part of that group, you were a hypertase. And it really means simply somebody who's subordinate. And it was a word that was used to describe someone who was given the most menial jobs in a household. It's a word that comes to be used as a subordinate or an assistant. What is fascinating to me, Paul is saying, okay, now you're thinking about leaders. The first thing I want you to understand is it's exactly the opposite of what you think because we typically think that leaders go on the top. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Let me under, let me explain something to you here. Leaders go on the bottom. 1970, a guy wrote an article called uh, Servant Leadership, and it kind of became the rage. 
But I want you to know it was not a new concept. Paul had it thousands of years ago. He's saying that the, the, the primary function of a leader is to serve. The position of leadership isn't to garner you power or prestige or honor. It's a position in which God places you to serve other people. And by the way, the way you know if you have that kind of servant's attitude is to look at yourself and how you respond when somebody treats you like a servant. That will let you know. It's easy to say, oh yeah, I'm a servant leader. And then when somebody doesn't render you the respect that you think you deserve, you get all huffy. Well, maybe you're not as much of a servant leader as you thought you were. But I don't want you to miss something here. Paul says, yeah, leaders are servants, but but he qualifies it, and he qualifies it in a very important way. He says, you're a servant of Christ. Now, now what he means by that, look, when you're in a position of leadership, your, your allegiance isn't first to that group or that community or that church or that business or that organization. Actually, your first responsibility is to serve Christ. And the way you serve Him is to serve those in the organization. Now, I think that's profound. Because one of the things that Paul is getting to here is how we see our fundamental identity and how a leader is to see his fundamental identity. In other words, our fundamental identity is not in the position. It's not in the job. It's not in the role. Rather, the fundamental identity is in Jesus being his servant. Let me ask you a question this morning. Where do you find your fundamental identity in life? And what I mean by that is what what gives you meaning and purpose? What is it that, that defines who you are? It's interesting to me that a lot of the things we put in that core place in our lives to give us the definition of who we are oftentimes are very fragile and thus it's very precarious. For example, a lot of us uh, find our fundamental identity in our careers, right? What we do for a living, how we operate, we feel good about that, we define ourselves by that, but that's, that's a very fragile thing to place your identity in because you can lose your job. Do you know over time you're going to lose your edge? The day's going to come when you retire and if you've placed all your identity in the function of what you do in terms of a career, guess what? It's gone. And now who are you? Some put their fundamental identity in their family. Moms, dads. They, They see that as the place that defines them. And in some ways that's great and in some ways it's incredibly dangerous and harmful. I don't know if you realize this, but uh, 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 the job of a parent ends because the whole intent of a parent is to raise an adult. And what does an adult do? They go and form their own identity, not in you. In other words, what I'm saying is kids leave, or at least supposed to. (laughs) And, And that's a good thing. But if you've wrapped your whole life up in them, you're lost. What do you do when they move out? 
What do you do if the relationship becomes broken? What if, what do you do if, for God forbid, they're taken? If that's your core identity, suddenly it's gone. Some people find their core identity in their abilities or their looks or their athleticism or maybe even their intelligence. You know, that defines who they are and they give themselves to that and that's kind of how they wrap themselves up in. But the problem again, that's all precarious because guess what? You're going to grow old. And you're going to lose your looks. And I don't care how much plastic surgery you have. At some point, you just become foolish. And you look foolish. Maybe we should push against our culture and embrace the wrinkles instead of fight against them. Just just a thought. I'm saying that because I'm getting old, okay? So don't take that wrong. Okay? Uh, But even your intelligence, you're not going to be as sharp as you once were. You begin to forget things. And if that's what you've wrapped your, your understanding of who you are in, you lose it. See, that's the amazing thing. When you don't put your identity in what you do or even in who you are, but in something beyond you, in Jesus, in being his servant, that's not vicarious. Because that cannot be taken away. Ever. You grow old, you're still a servant of Jesus. You lose your job, you're still a servant of Jesus. Your family moves away and they grow up, you're still a servant of Jesus. You lose your intelligence and your looks and everything. And you're still a servant of Jesus. And nobody can take that relationship away. And when you ground your identity in your relationship with Him, there's this incredible freedom that, 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 that makes you independent of the circumstances of life. Because your identity is not wrapped up in how well things are going, but this relationship that is always with you. Where do you find your identity? So Paul says, first thing, a leader has to have is this understanding. We need to perceive them this way as servants of Christ. The second thing he, he says about these leaders is that they're trustees. Go back to the verse. He says, this then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. A trustee in that culture was like an estate manager. They were given the responsibilities to act as the owner But when they acted that way, when they were entrusted with resources, their primary responsibility was to make sure they handled those resources in accordance with what the owner wanted. There's an interesting document from that time that has a quote about a trustee. Uh, It's from the time of Christ. The document says, it's actually a letter this guy sent. I have empowered you by this document to administer my estate in Arsenault and to collect the rents and, if need be, to arrange new leases or to cultivate land yourself and to give receipts in my name and to transact any business connected with stewardship just as I can transact it when I'm present and to distribute the plots in Karamis, restoring to me what remains over as to which matter I rely on your good faith and confirm whatever you decide about them. You begin thinking of that and saying, man, that's, a, that's an awesome responsibility. You become the representative of the owner, the representative 
in this sense, of God himself. And the question becomes, okay, what are we going to do with what's been entrusted to us? Will we handle it well? Or will we use it as if it's ours? I went and saw the new Mad Max movie. Um, I'm not recommending it, okay? It's actually kind of a silly movie. It's a desolated landscape. There's no resources. There's no water. There's no gasoline. Yet the whole thing is everybody drives these cars that don't get good gas mileage. They have headers on them and bags, and they must get two miles to the gallon. But everybody drives these cars in a world without gas. Anyway, it's a silly movie, okay? But but one of the main figures is a guy named Immortal Joe, and he is the guy who who uh, rules what is called the Citadel. And the Citadel is the one place in this barren landscape that actually has water. And because it has water, uh, he can grow plants and food. But what you discover about the Citadel is Immortal Joe is the trustee of all the water and all the great stuff when there's this dry parched land all around. And what does he do with it? He simply consumes it on himself. Every once in a while, he opens the floodgates to give the population just a taste to keep them under his rule. But he just uses it for himself. And you watch the movie and there's this feeling of injustice. That's part of the movie. I started thinking about that and I realized, you know, sometimes we can be in danger of the same thing. We've been entrusted with a lot. And what do we do with it? In a world that's desperately in need, how much of it do we use as the king wants it used? And how much of it do we simply consume on ourselves? What's really interesting in this passage, he says, look, you're trustees, but what you're a trustee of is the mysteries that God has revealed. And you kind of ask yourself, okay, what are the mysteries that God has revealed? And if you go back to chapter 2, he kind of defines that there a little bit for us. But mysteries basically are the fullness of the gospel. Uh, the fullness of the gospel. The gospel is the good news. And the good news is what? That Jesus died on the cross and dying on the cross, he defeated all evil and he defeated death and he laid the foundation for making everything new and he procured for us forgiveness and this coming transformation and he inaugurated this kingdom. What's Paul saying? He's saying, look guys, you've been entrusted with the truth, the ultimate truth about the nature of reality, what life is all about. You've got all the answers to all the big questions of life. They've been given to you. They've been mysterious. The world doesn't know, but you know. And the question is, what are you going to do with them? It's like we're living in this desolate land, spiritually desolate land, filled with incredibly spiritually thirsty and spiritually hungry people. And we've got water and food. And what are we doing? What are we doing? So Paul says, look, when you think about your leaders, understand they're servants of Christ 
and they're trustees. They're, they're just the tools that God has placed his resources in so that they can use those and spread them out to you and the world. Now, what's interesting, Paul chases two implications from these two descriptions he has given, okay? Servants of Christ and trustees. And they're, they're really profound implications, okay? And the first has to do with accountability. Um, verses 2 through, I think it's 6, if we can get the text up. Look at 2 through 5. He says, now it is required that those who have been given a trust must be proved must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. He's saying, look, you don't judge me. I can't even judge myself. My conscience is clear. But just because I think the way I've been living is okay doesn't make it is. I mean, if I'm doing things that go against my conscience, then I'm in trouble. But just because my conscience is clear, that doesn't mean I'm okay before God. That's his to decide. Okay? So it doesn't make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. In that time, we will receive their praise from God. He's saying, look, when you're a trustee, then the one you're accountable to is not the people, but the owner. We're accountable to God. Now, now it's interesting. I think most of us go through life, and what we're primarily concerned about is that other people think well of us. Yeah. I mean, when I preach... You know what makes me feel good? If you think I did a good job, then I feel really good about it. And that's really stupid. Because, to be quite honestly, what you think about how I preach is absolutely irrelevant. Right? Because it's not your your stuff that I'm communicating. It's his stuff. So you may think it's great, but if he thinks I missed, I missed. But what do I get nervous about? You! You! It's just stupid. (laughs) But you're no better, okay? (laughs) Right? You go through life just like I go through life, and we worry about what people think about us when, in reality, it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter what people think about you. Ultimately, it only matters what he thinks about you. And his scorecard is very different than the scorecard people use. That was happening in Corinth. What was the scorecard for them? They were evaluating the leaders on how wise they were and how eloquent they were and what, what kind of charisma they had. Those were really important to the Corinthians. They were saying, oh, score it. That was a good message. Eight. Oh, that was not so good. Four. And, you know, <laughs> and Paul's saying, Put your scorecards away because this wasn't for you in the first place. These are mysteries entrusted. And the only one who has the right to judge is God himself. And his criteria isn't based on wisdom or elegance or charisma. His criteria is based on faithfulness. Did you do what I wanted you to do with what I've entrusted you with? 
I think one of the biggest shocks we are in for when we get to the other side, in a sense, that's really bad theology I just gave you. I'm sorry. (laughs) At the second coming when Christ comes here and we're evaluated for how we lived, his scorecard is going to be very different than our scorecard. Think about the things we care about. We, we care about getting a good education, making a good living. Not that those are bad things, but, but we want to live in a nice house and we want to have some, you know, modicum of success. We want to be able to climb the ladder. We want other people to think well of us. You know, and those things don't even show up on his scorecard. It's like we've been climbing this ladder to get to the top of the to the top and then we look around and realize the ladder's leaning on the wrong building we made it and who cares <laughs> it's like we've been playing monopoly and we think the goal of monopoly is to get all the properties and get everybody else out of the game and be the last one who's won and then you, at the end, God says, no, you, you misunderstood the rules. The rules wasn't to get all the properties. The rule was to give all your property away. You know, to lose first. Because when you lose first, you won. Crud. His scorecard is very different than our scorecard. What's really fascinating, if you look at that text, he says, God doesn't just look on the externals and and your so-called effectiveness. He looks at the heart. In other words, what plays big with God is, why did you do what you did? What was the motive behind the activity? It really changes your whole orientation towards life. So the first implication of being a servant and a trustee has to do with being accountable. The second has to do with ego. Look at what he says beginning in verse 6. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos. In other words, all this stuff about leadership. For your benefit. Remember I said he's talking about leadership, but it's going to trickle down into us. For your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. That's a hard phrase to understand, but he's talking about places he's quoted the Old Testament earlier in chapters 1 through 3. And basically the gist of those quotes uh, is simply, uh, don't boast except in the Lord. All right? Um, So don't go beyond what, what is written. Don't boast in anything but the Lord. Then you will not be puffed up. And being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Leave that up just for a second. This, this word puffed up means something that's overinflated, okay? It's like a balloon that has been blown up beyond its capacity. And something that's puffed up or overinflated is always empty on the inside. It's gotten too big for its britches, in a sense. And Paul is saying, look, if if you understand you're an entrustee and you're to be a servant of Christ, there there is no place for arrogance or pride or being puffed up. 
um, you're burging. You're trying to bask in the reflected glory of the leaders. You think that because you're connected to those leaders, somehow that makes you a big deal. She says, it's stupid. It's kind of like when the Broncos win the Super Bowl, man. We feel great, don't we? We think they're our team and it's just this high ego. And it's stupid. Really, really, because if the Broncos win, you and I had absolutely nothing to do with it. We didn't show up at any practice. We didn't show any pass. We didn't make any block or tackle. Nothing to do with it. <laughs> so so why do we feel so good about it? Because we bought into corporate America and they make money off of making us feel good about our... T- um, anyway. <laughs> but we're just being puffed up and silly. Here's the problem. <laughs> this is really applicable to our culture because I think narcissism has become the epidemic of the day in our world. Uh, um, there's a great quote by Oscar Wilde. To love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong romance. <laughs> now we don't call it narcissism. We call it self-esteem. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but <laughs> we're the only culture in the history of the world that has put so much emphasis on having good self-esteem. Because for centuries and millennial before this, the idea was don't be proud, don't have hubris, don't, don't think too highly of yourself. In, in fact, in Scripture, it traces all these evils Back to our pride. Well, well, they're beginning to do research now in psychology today. There was, they were talking about this research that they've done on self-esteem. And we've always had this notion in our culture that people who get in trouble, they get in trouble because they have low self-esteem. And they found out that that's not a correlation at all. That the correlation is that people who break the law and get in trouble oftentimes have really high self-esteem. They think so highly of themselves, they think they don't have to obey the law. So we've set this value for our kids. We want our kids to have high self-esteem. It may not be the value we think it is. I know I just alienated all of you by saying that. (laughs) But, But... It's important to think accurately about yourself, but thinking accurately about yourself means thinking about yourself as God thinks about you. Not being puffed up. Not being arrogant. Not having hubris. And we go back to the verse. Paul just devastates this this notion of ego and narcissism with three questions. He says, number one, For who makes you different from anybody else? What's he saying? You're no different than any other person on the planet. And you see, we always want to think of ourselves as grand, and that always means thinking ourselves better than others. And he's saying, look, bottom line, you're no better. You're created in the image of God, but so are them. So are they. Sorry. There's (laughs) There's no difference. Right? You're not special just by the right of your birth, by your lineage. I mean, this is really pushing against the world because this is a world 
where, where, where patronage and your family name and your bloodline meant something. And Paul says it doesn't mean a thing. Because that's not where you find your value. Your value comes from the fact that you're in the image of God, not because your daddy and mommy were so-and-so and their last name was this. No different. And then he pushes that. So what do you have that you did not receive? What's he saying? You know, we, we think we're self-made people. We climbed the ladder of success. We got the degree. We started the business. We, we made the money. We, we're, and Paul's saying, wait, 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 wait. What do you have that you were not given? First of all, look at where you were born and the century you were born in. Good for you, you weren't born in Nepal in the 8th century. You happen to be born in America in the 21st century. You happen to be born in a place you could get an education. You happen to be born in a world that gave you the freedom to pursue your career. I, I mean... Don't think too highly of yourself. You don't have anything that ultimately was not given to you by the gracious hand of God. And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Don't ever feel pride in your great accomplishments. What we need to feel in our great accomplishments is gratitude. Because ultimately, they're because of Him. Very little room for ego in the Christian life. Okay, back to the the, the list. He said, uh, first of all, leaders need to be servants of Christ. Second of all, they're trustees. And third, this is interesting, they're scum. Look at uh, the passage. He begins this contrast. <laughs> Thank you. Already, um, you have all you, you want. Already you have become... He's going to contrast how he, Paul views the Christian life and how the Corinthians view the Christian life, okay? And it, it's, it's really interesting. It's very different. He says, already you have what you want. Already you've become rich. You begin to reign, and that without us. The Corinthians, you know, this now and not yet, they think the not yet, the future has already arrived. So they're, they're reigning now and they're rich now. And that's the point of the Christian life is to make everything grand and right. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we could also reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those contempted to die in the arena. In the gladiatorial games, at the end of the games, they would bring out those at the end of the procession that were condemned for death. And they would just be slaughtered. And Paul's saying, that's us. We're the guys at the end. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as human beings. We are fools for Christ, but oh, you... you you Corinthians, you're wise. We are weak, but you're strong. You're honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we're cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we, we answer kindly. We become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. The, the scum, that word refers to something you scrape off the bottom of your shoe. And the garbage is this kitchen metaphor where you, you sweep up the garbage and both the scum and the garbage are destined for the gutter. 
fundamentally different views of the Christian life. Now, one of the questions you have to ask yourself is, why? I mean, Paul is saying, look, look at how the world sees us and the world is rejecting us and we live a life of hardship and, and they're persecuting us. And the question is, why? Why is the world rejecting the, the apostles? Because they're proponents of this mystery of the gospel. And when you begin to think about what the gospel is, you begin to, to realize it grates against the prevailing norms and culture and thinking of the world. The gospel says that eternal life is a gift of grace. You don't work for it. It's something God gives you that you receive by faith. But we live in a proud world and our world says, no, I want to earn my salvation or at least contribute to it. I want to get credit for all the good things I've done. So there's, there's this tension. The gospel is about grace. The world's about work. The gospel says that, that Jesus is unique in his incarnation, his atonement, and, and his resurrection. So unique that he really is the only way to God. And thus Christianity is exclusive. Now you can say a lot of things in our culture, but you can't say that. Because <laughs> our culture believes in pluralism. It's okay to say that Jesus is a way to God. It's not okay to say that he's the way to God. And when you say he's the way and the only way, you're saying there is truth and there is error. And you have to decide. And our world doesn't like that. Because why? We live in a world that believes in relativism. Whatever you want to be true is true for you. And we're saying, no, no, no. And then the gospel says that once you receive Jesus, you want to live up to this high moral standard. And our culture is beginning to push back against that moral standard, especially when it comes to the realm of sexuality and family and marriage. And we're at odds. You see, and Paul was at odds. And the Corinthians have it wrong because they think, hey, you come to Jesus and He makes life grand. He forgives your sins and He gives you peace and happiness and now blessing and riches and life's just wonderful. And Paul says, yeah, but not yet. I think we sometimes have a fundamental misperception of the nature of Christianity. We think faith is all about us and what God's going to do for us and what he's going to do in terms of making us happy and life comfortable. And we forget that fundamentally... Christianity is a call to a life of hardship and suffering. Because at the center of the Christian faith is the cross. We follow a leader who is willing out of his love for us to die and suffer. And we're called to imitate him and to share those sufferings. And we get our expectations confused. In fact, we get mad at God when our expectations of a comfortable life don't measure up and something bad happens and we say, well, where is God? How could He let... He says, wait a second, don't you understand? You live in a fallen world. This is the calling. This is the now. And the now is hardship and suffering and the cross. The not yet is not yet. 
And we need to be very careful how we share the gospel. Because we've turned it into a commodity and want to sell it. And the way we sell it is we tell people, come to Jesus and he'll give you peace and he'll give you forgiveness and he'll make everything right in your life. And there's some truth to that. And we say, come to Jesus and he wants to be your friend. And there's some truth to that. But, but that short story misses two fundamental realities. One, the reason you should come to Jesus Christ and embrace Christianity most is because it's true. Whether it's good for you, bad for you or not, it's because it's true. It's because Jesus lived and died and was resurrected. And that's historical fact. And that's why you accept Jesus. Because it's true. And accepting that truth, then you begin to understand, yeah, that Jesus is your friend, but fundamentally He's your King. And you see, understanding Jesus primarily as your King rather than primarily your friend, those are two different things. Because if He's my friend, it's all about me and what He does for me and my companionship. My, if He's your, His King, then it's about His kingdom and His agenda. And yes, he may be the king who happens to be my friend. <laughs> but but don't mistake what we've bought into. Kings make demands on your life. Kings aren't ready to be second place. Kings aren't so confirmed, concerned about your personal happiness and comfort, but very concerned about their kingdom and their agenda in the world. You know, as Protestants, we like crosses without Jesus on it. And we, we, we have crosses without Jesus because we want it to remind us of the resurrection and victory. And that's great and that's true and we need those. Sometimes I think we need crucifixes. Because the crucifix reminds us that this God suffered on our behalf. And that the calling of the gospel isn't just comfort and victory, but suffering and death. And we need to understand that. So Paul says, hey, leaders, they're scum. Because <laughs> that's how the world sees them. Because they're sharing the mysteries of God and they're getting pushed back. Last, their family. This is interesting. Paul says, look, in the next verse, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children, even if you had 10,000 guardians, Christ, you do not have any, very many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I've sent Timothy. Paul understands that leadership demands relationship. And his relationship is as a father to a child. He's the one who birthed them in the gospel. It's been fun to watch my daughter, who just had her first baby, um, and watch <laughs> their relationship grow. <laughs> That's Emmeline. See, there's this, this connection. And, and you know what that connection is like. If you've had your own kids, you know how you feel about your child. 
Man, it's almost indescribable. And that's what Paul's saying. He said, don't, don't mishear me. This is how much I care about you and love you. And it's in that context he says, now, imitate me. Relationship. Leadership in church always demands relationship. Leadership always demands relationship. It's not just providing direction and structure. It's also providing love. Because you know what, folks? The church is not a commodity. It's not a program. It's not an event. It, it, it is a community of relationships. And we have to enter it into. In our culture, we've changed it into commodity. We, we, we consume it. We go where we like the preaching or the music or the accommodation or what's cool. And we think that's the defining thing. That's not the defining thing. It's the community. It's our relationship with one each other. That's why oftentimes in the New Testament, they call it family. This is your spiritual family. This is your spiritual community. And, and if you're going to engage, it, it demands that you engage in relationship. So my final challenge to you this morning is uh, whether you're in a position of leadership or not, think of yourself this way as servants of Jesus Christ, as trustees, as scum, and as family. I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to close with a prayer together for our leaders and for ourselves. Uh, would you just pray with me as I read it out loud? Let's pray together. May we seek the Father that we might always remember who is the head of your church. May we seek the Son so we become servants like Jesus. May we seek the Holy Spirit and may the Holy Spirit fill up so much of us that there isn't room for ego. We pray that the quest for power is removed from us and replaced with humility. We pray that the sense of fear is removed from us and replaced with love. Transform our hearts to become like you. Transform our actions to become better servants. Transform our minds so our egos may soften. Let us advance the kingdom to spread the gospel and to model for others how to serve and love. Amen.